This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. This morning we'll be reading from Psalms chapter 112. That'll be Psalms chapter 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church Highlands. Um, Or as I was told this week, Park Church OG. So greetings from Park Church downtown. And I want to say a welcome to those of you who are joining us on the live stream. I know some of you are home for health reasons. Some of you are traveling now with the first maybe full week of the summer in full swing. And we're glad that you can join us and worship along this way. If you are able to come back in person and gather safely, we encourage you to do so as well. Um, Church is going well downtown. We're very grateful for everybody's patience up here and just love and acceptance of us. Um, My wife is down here, Marty, with our two little boys, um, Micah and Miles, and our daughter Maddie was in the first service and headed back downtown with some friends um, after the first service. So we're all grateful to get to know many of you over uh, a long period of time, and it's great to be up here finally on a Sunday to worship with you. So let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll look at Psalm 112 this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, my, my voice is weak this morning, but your word is mighty to save, to heal, to transform, to bind up the broken places in our lives. So we come to you just unashamed to acknowledge, Lord, that we do not live up to the expectations of this particular psalm, but we look not to ourselves, to our own performance this morning. Our hope is not ultimately that we are good enough, but our hope is in Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you would be magnified this morning, that you would be exalted, that we would all leave here this morning with some understanding of how we gain this kind of righteousness through you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
my rock and my redeemer. Amen. How many of you would like to be happy? Hopefully everyone. Is there's a word for people who don't want to be happy? It's not a nice word. Um, the French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this same end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every person, of every action, even of those who hang themselves. I'm talking about happiness because our psalm this morning begins with these words. After saying, praise the Lord, it says, blessed is the man who. And just so we get this out of the way, that word man is not gender specific. So I'll I'll be saying this morning, blessed is the one, okay? It's speaking of mankind in general. So blessed is the one. So if you're a woman, you are not excluded from this. It's just simply saying, blessed is the one who. And that word blessed, if we focus on that for just a moment, means happy. Now, we'll see in a minute that it means more than just happiness, but it doesn't mean less than happiness. It doesn't mean less than being fully satisfied. But what the writer goes on to describe here is extremely counterintuitive. It is countercultural because if you were to go to people in our society and say, hey, what do you need to be happy, to be satisfied? Most people in our culture today would say, I need ultimate freedom. I need autonomy to choose my own path, to to make my own way, to, to make my own decisions without oversight and control and restrictions from other people telling me what to do. I need to be able to choose. And you see here that the Bible's saying something quite different. This Psalm says, if you want to be happy, you have to be righteous, which means that you're conformed to someone else's standard. And it sounds like a loss of freedom. It sounds like God's not even speaking in a sense to our generation at all, but I assure you he is, and it's worth exploring. So let me give you this kind of this theme of this particular psalm, and then we're going to unpack this here this morning. Here's what I hear the the psalmist saying. He's saying true happiness because he wants you to find it. He's not saying true happiness is abandoned the moment you decide to follow God, but let's grin and bear it. No, he's saying true happiness is found as a byproduct of a kind of faith that transforms your current lifestyle and your future hope. That there's a kind of faith that completely reorders our lifestyle, our conduct, our character, and gives us a future hope. And if we, in living this way, we find true and lasting and durable joy. So I'm going to unpack this with you with four C's this morning. We're going to look at the character of the righteous, the conduct of the righteous, the commendation of the righteous, and then finally the confidence of the righteous. So let's just jump right in. The character of the righteous. And I want you to focus on verse 4, where he gives us three attributes that he says, this is basically who the righteous person is. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he is righteous. And again, as I'm saying he, you could say she is merciful, she is gracious, she is righteous. I think most of these words are fairly self-explanatory. Gracious and merciful are very similar words. 
They overlap in their semantic range. Someone who's gracious is compassionate. They are merciful, especially to two categories of people. They're merciful toward those that have sinned against them and need forgiveness. And they're also merciful toward those who are just simply needy. They're destitute, they're poor, they're in desperate need of something. And that's what this word grace addresses. The word merciful addresses a deep and tender love and compassion. But then it's almost like a shifting of gears with this third one, gracious, compassionate, merciful, and righteous, which the word, I love this Old Testament word righteousness because it comes from like a building metaphor, construction metaphor, because it refers to something that is right or level. And if you were erecting a small wall or a small house and you were just using a ruler, which I don't advise you to do, 12 inches, if you were measuring everything 12 inches at a time, do you imagine you might be able to hold up a ruler and you're eyeballing it, you're trying to make sure that your house is upright and over the course of that one foot, could you be off maybe half an inch and not even notice? You know, the Freedom Tower, which replaced the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan is 1,776 feet tall. If you were off by a half an inch every foot, you would be off by 74 feet at the top. It would be that far out of plumb. It's important that we build things right and level. And that's this word righteous, the idea that we hold our lives up to a standard. So as our lives are being built on something and with something, they are safe. They are durable. Now, I want you to note that we often treat these first three attributes or character qualities as like an either or, or almost like they're at, at odds with each other. We all probably know people that are like just super compassionate, merciful, gracious, kind. They're quick to forgive. They're patient. They're empathetic. And it's like they don't know anything about the law of God. They just kind of, yeah, let's not talk about that. Let's just love and be kind. But what about the Bible that says, eh, you know, don't worry about that. And we also know people that are like, nope, this is what the law says. This is the command. We're going to cross our T's and dot our I's. We're going we're to be righteous people. And they lack empathy so often. They lack kindness. And what's incredible is that the word of God here is actually saying that this grace and mercy is actually a part of what it means to be a truly righteous person. These are not enemies. These are not at odds with each other, and they're not optional. So that's the character of the righteous. Let's go on to point two, the conduct of the righteous. And we're shifting from who this person is now to what this person does. And just as there were three primary qualities of this person, now the psalmist is going to show us three primary activities. Beginning in verse one, the righteous person is someone who delights in the Lord's commandments. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron. Delights in the Lord's commandments. That's like delighting in a root canal. Delighting in dental work. Like, I know, it's, I know it's good for me. I know I need it. I know it's a corrective. But we're more about, like, griping about and then kind of grudgingly, eventually sort of obeying God rather than being people who are like, yes, I delight in God's commandments. And he says, the righteous person delights in God's commandments. And maybe that even resonates with you as I say that. Maybe you would say, I, I don't feel delight toward God's commandments. Maybe you feel like 
I do living in this culture, sometimes there's a tension where you read certain things in the word and you know how culture is perceiving that particular command and you're like, ooh, I wish that wasn't in there. Like I'm embarrassed by that. It, it, it seems onerous. It seems like for a, a past day and time and cultural moment that God would say some of the things that he says. And we may even find ourselves agreeing with the world that many of God's commands are absurd, they're, they're optional, we're doing like hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain stuff away so we don't have to do parts of what God commands rather than delighting. And I want to say, um, if God is God and if we believe that he's God, like he's the sole creator and source of everything else that is, I think we just need to acknowledge like he has the right to say whatever he wants. And if he's a good God, as the Bible declares that he is, then his commandments are good. And the disconnect is probably not that the commands are actually bad. The disconnect is probably in our own minds and hearts and our ability to comprehend them. But I do want to illustrate this because I think very often we think the boundaries of God that are in his commands are arbitrary. Or they're even worse, they're, they're mean-spirited, they're narrow-minded, they're controlling or something like that. They're there to steal our fun, right? Everywhere we turn, it's like, oh, can't do that. Oh, can't do that. Oh, can't do that. And very often Christians are known to the world as people who just can't do anything, right? And that's not a reality at all. Um, the commands of God are actually there not to enslave us, but to free us. And I'll illustrate it this way. When we go up to my wife's father has a place up in Grand Lake and we drive back and forth very often. So we go up over Berthoud Pass. Many of you have done this drive. If you've gone to Winter Park or Grand Lake or the backside of Rocky Mountain National Park, just a ton of hairpin turns. And uh, I like to drive fast. And I like to drive fast on sharp turns. And I like to drive fast on sharp turns in the ice and snow. I mean, this is fun, okay? Um, my wife has this amazing Volvo with this amazing all-wheel drive, and it's, it's a blast. But, but do you know why that drive is fun? It's because there's guardrails. It's because she has this neat thing in her car that we can pull up in the center console where it's GPS, like live. And I can see, like, turn by turn, I know exactly what's coming. And there are street signs posted everywhere that say, like, you can't go that speed anymore. You need to start slowing down for a turn that's ahead. And if I were driving and it were super foggy or rainy or snowy, as sometimes it has been, and if I knew there were no guardrails, man, I'd be white-knuckling it all the way through there, right? And you would, too. It would not be fun. It would be terrifying. It is, it is really the existence of these boundaries that are there to, to actually free us. And when we start seeing God's commands this way of like he prohibits certain things and he encourages other certain things because he knows the way that he fashioned you and me in his image. He knows the way his universe works. And he's like, if you obey me, if you delight in my commandments, you will have maximum freedom and maximum liberty in life on this earth. Let me just apply this to the arena of sexuality because this is an area today where Christians are often finding themselves in tension with the world and more and more often just kind of caving in or being this righteous, non-empathetic person, this not compassionate person, just like, nope, it's just very clear to me. 
And it's easy to pick up scripture and just be like, man, the Bible is restrictive when it comes to this. It's like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Can't do it with them. Can't do it with them. Can't do it like this. You know, and it's just like, what are you doing, God? Well, I'll say if you, if you sit on my side of the counseling table, I think what God is doing is saying, I've designed boundaries so you don't ever have to feel the guilt, the shame, the manipulation, the, the weight of a life of lust and heartbreak and dysphoria and broken families and shattered lives and just confusion. And when God says, when you do things my way, yeah, I know it's constrictive, but if you learn to delight in what I'm telling you to do, you are ultimately free and satisfied. So let's remember that being a righteous person, part of that is that you train your heart and mind to delight in. And maybe even take something that you're kind of pushing up against right now, some specific command of Scripture, and explore that this week. Why might God have that particular guardrail in place to actually set me free from something? Okay, so the righteous person delights in the Lord's commandments. Secondly, the righteous person, verse 5 and 9, gives generously to those in need. There's not a ton to say here, but the, the word generously is from the same root word as gracious. And the idea is it's a compassionate overflow. It's a giving of something that is not deserved or earned. And I simply want to ask you, Park Church, are you characterized by your generosity? Are you living an open-handed life, distributing to the needs of other people? As God has blessed you, maybe more abundantly than you need, are you investing in the lives of others with an intentional overflow of giving? And I want to say, maybe, maybe this morning some of you are not able to do that so much with money. You're like, I just survived a pandemic. I survived the loss of my job or my entire business. But then consider what other resources God may have put in your hand to be generous with, like your time, like a special gift or an energy that you could use to invest in either church or your own community or in the workplace to be a source of encouragement to others. Is your life characterized by generosity? And then a third action here, this is from first, verse 5, is that the righteous person conducts himself or herself with justice. And justice is related to this earlier word righteousness where if there's this right standard, this, this level, justice is making judgment calls based on that right standard. Now, I know immediately when many Christians think of doing justice, we're like, yeah, that's what the court system's for. And we kind of just exonerate ourselves of responsibility of being just. We're like, let, let the courts handle it. That's, that's what they do. Um, and I understand that, that you and I are not going through life in the same way, distributing justice in the way that a judge or a jury is called to do. But I just want you to think, how many times during the course of a day are you called upon to make almost an instantaneous judgment call on anything? A judgment call about a person, a judgment call about a situation, a judgment call about a relationship. And you know, a lot of times the verdicts, because we're passing down verdicts all day, every day. That's what we're doing. And a lot of times the verdicts that I'm hearing or reading on social media 
even from the church, they sound more informed by like CNN or Fox News than by the Bible. Facts. They sound like they're informed by our favorite celebrities and bloggers and authors and talk show personalities, social media influencers, politicians, educators, then they sound like the wisdom of the Spirit. And friends, I want to just bring you back to this word righteousness. The standard to which we align our lives is God's truth, God's grace, God's perfect sense of justice. I'm not telling you not to read these other things or listen to these other things. They're, they're sources of information. You interact in this world. But would to God that we would be a church that as we're making judgments and judgment calls, that there is a justice flowing to other people from our lives, from our lips, that mirrors the heart of God for all people. By the way, I want you to notice again this this fascinating juxtaposition of actions that we don't often hold together. You have generosity, which is typically a person who's like, hey, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. You didn't earn this, but I see a need and my heart breaks for you. I have compassion for you versus like, boom, justice. Give each his due. And it's like, how how do we give each his due, justice, and simultaneously give what people don't deserve, which is generosity or grace or mercy? There's a tension in these things. How do we do that? And I'll come back to that question. Um, First, I want to show you what happens if you live this way. So point three is the commendation of the righteous. Commendation means like the reward, the praise that comes to this person. I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, in verses one and two, we see that God himself commends the person who lives this way with blessing and honor. And we already established the fact that this word blessing in verse 1 means happy, satisfied, favored. Again, in verse 2, you see the word blessed, but it's actually a different Hebrew word. And this one means praised or commended. Like God himself is extolling the virtues. He's affirming the the kindness and the mercy and the justice of this particular person. Then in verse 9, you go to the end of the psalm and we see this phrase, this person is exalted in honor. And that word honor there is the Hebrew word kabod, which is oftentimes the word that we use for the glory, the majesty of God himself. And the collective thrust of words like this is that God himself is saying, look at the person who lives this way. Look at this person. Like, is anyone doing this perfectly? No, but look at people who are using their lives to be the right kind of people and to do the right kinds of things. And this is the kind of person that I choose to honor. This is the character. This is the lifestyle that I commend. This is the person who will be truly happy. But that's not all. Let's keep going. Because in verses 2 and 3, we see two other commendations. In verse 2, we see mighty descendants. In verse 3, we see riches and wealth. He says, very often these people are going to have these big families, multi-generational blessing of God. And maybe here, even in Park Church, you see a family like that or someone like that that you can relate to of like, oh, you know, the so-and-so is like their grandparents and their parents and their kids and their grandkids and 
for generations, like they've just, they've just lived this way. Not, not exactly right, but, but they love God. They love people. And you just see God blessing them. And what a, what a great family. And uh, this next one in verse 3, wealth and riches, just the idea of a super abundance of possessions in their house. And you may know people like that. And by the way, I'll say, hey, Christians, let's be careful. There's a tendency to be like, ooh, wealthy Christian. I wonder what they, you know, obviously they don't, they don't love God. Well, and right here it's saying that one of the potential blessings of God could be even temporary wealth or riches because you've honored him with your life. You've honored him with your business. Um, But let me speak to this because can we acknowledge life doesn't always work this way? We're talking about, yes, God calls you to live with this kind of character and this kind of conduct. But do you know people who are trying to do this and actually doing it fairly well? And instead of honor, instead of affirmation, they've lost a job over it. They've lost a deal over it by being honest instead of by being unscrupulous. Do you know people who are living this and instead of having mighty descendants, they're not even getting married, though God has put in their heart a desire to be married. Or they are married or they're going through a struggle with infertility. Maybe you know someone who's living this way and their experience is not wealth and riches, but poverty and unemployment. And I want to just acknowledge that two ways. Number one, this, is, this particular psalm is part of a collection of psalms called a wisdom psalm. Um, some of you may have noticed when this was read earlier in its entirety that it sounds a lot like a proverb, like contrasting the blessing of the righteous with the curse on the wicked. It sounds like a proverb more so than a psalm. That's because it's a wisdom psalm. So what a proverb is doing is a proverb is not saying this is the way it is. One plus one equals two. It's always that way. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. A proverbial statement is something that's generally true in a broken world. Okay, so we need to acknowledge that, that God is saying it's generally true that if you live a certain way, if you sow a certain kind of seed, a certain thing comes back to you, but not always, okay? But then... A second thing I think that we would be remiss not to say is that there is fundamentally another kind of offspring of wealth and of honor that is greater than, that is surpassing simply our smallest and most short-term conceptions of those terms. Some of you who may not even have children, but you work in Park Church, you, you, you volunteer with Park Kids and you're sowing seeds of the gospel into other people's lives, or, or you work with a volunteer organization or with the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, what are you doing? You're, you're sowing seeds that are bringing people out of death into life, into the family, into the offspring of God. And in a sense, as Paul the apostle would say, these are my spiritual offspring. So God is still doing this as we live a righteous life. Jesus himself with wealth and riches taught us, don't just focus on laying up treasures on earth, but lay up the kind of treasure that will endure forever in heaven. So there is that kind as well. So don't say, well, God isn't immediately doing this in a short span of time in my life or even over a long period of time. Therefore, God is not true. These other things come into play. But I'm going to be honest. I'm going to spend the rest of the message this morning on this. I've got an even bigger concern with this particular psalm 
than simply the fact that it doesn't seem to hold true for everyone. And maybe some of you noticed this tension as we went through it. So far, this entire sermon sounds like be good, do good, and good things will come to you. Like, be good, do good, and you'll be happy. God will accept you and bless you because you're a good person doing good things. And that sounds to me a lot like moralism or legalism. That sounds a lot to me so far like a TED Talk. Like, put a bumper sticker on your car, be good, do good, and nobody's going to disagree with you. Okay? This is not a Christian message. It's, it's from the Bible, but it's not yet a Christian message. And my biggest fear in preaching a psalm like this is that you would walk away from here like, okay, yeah, I need to be more gracious. So I'm going to like pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to work really hard this week because I know I'm short-tempered. I just know that. So I'm going to be that. Well, you should be that. But let's talk about how you can do that. How can you be this righteous person? And this is this fourth point, the confidence of the righteous. So let me just point out to you two simple phrases that are, that are left here in the text that are kind of the key to the whole thing. Number one, in verse one, verse one says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord. And Miguel wanted me to remind you that he ended Psalm 111 last Sunday on this stage, showing you the last verse of the previous Psalm, and they're connected. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. Okay, he may have explained some of this last week, but fear, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And there's a very broad semantic range to this word fear. It can be everything from like a reverence and a, a worshipful tone of heart or posture of heart to like this sense of awe and transcendency all the way over here to like this dread fear, like you are terrorized by something. And you're like, okay, so if God is holy and righteous and perfect and all-powerful, but he's also my father, like, what's that fear supposed to look like in real life? And I'll illustrate it this way. I enjoy trail running around here, but I confess I am very afraid of rattlesnakes and mountain lions. And... Uh, when I run like North Table Mountain or Mount Galbraith or the signs of the trailhead sometimes that say like warning rattlesnake activity in the area and you pay close attention to like what trails are closed because they found this nest of rattlesnakes. And if you've ever seen one of these things, like don't look it up because it'll make you more afraid because these things just like nod up on each other and they're like hundreds of them and they're just like doing like writhing together and it's just, I just picture falling into that and being bitten hundreds of times and dying and no one ever discovers my body, right? Or uh, about the time I think that there's no mountain lions, I hear a story of a guy jogging by himself above Boulder and he has to like punch a mountain lion to death, you know? So it, it's terrifying. So what do I do with that fear? Because the fear is not a paralyzing fear. I still want to go trail running, but I would say it makes me hyper aware. So as I'm running, I'm scanning the trail ahead of me, and I see like the trail, but in my subconscious, I'm kind of scanning back and forth, both sides of the trail, the rocks, the, 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 the logs that I'm jumping over, the grasses on either side, and periodically I'm looking behind me to see is, like, is there a mountain lion stalking me up on the rocks above, you know? And I continue to run, but I'm hyper aware of the potential presence of these things. And I think in a sense, that's actually what God is calling us to do is simply to, to fear the Lord means to walk in a continual awareness. God, this is who you are. 
This is what you've done in my life. This is what you've promised to do. To live in the fear of the Lord doesn't mean that you're cowering in fear. It means you're truly alive to the eternal and practical realities of, God, of how God is interacting with your life and your world and your speech and your conduct right now in the moment. So friends, is there anything that you wouldn't do that you're doing right now if you looked across the room and Jesus of Nazareth was sitting there? Would it, would it change a conversation that you're supposed to have even today? If you looked across the room and there's Jesus as a partner to this conversation, would it change what you do on this device? Would it change where you go online? Would it change boundaries that you have with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Would it change a business practice? Is there anything that God would say, stop this and start this because I am in fact present and you fear me, which means you're aware of me and you're delighting in me. But as much as fearing the Lord is important, it's not enough. So there's one more thing here. Verse seven, the righteous person, their confidence is not only fearing the Lord, but is also trusting in the Lord. And we see this in verse seven. Why is this person not afraid of bad news? It's because they trust in the Lord. Their trust, their confidence, their faith has reoriented life. It's not that God has said, I'll deliver you from bad news. There will be no bad news because you love me. And he says, you're in the middle of bad news. You're walking through this challenging season and it hurts. And that's some of you right now. How do you find your way through? It is by trusting in the Lord. And I actually appreciate the honesty of this psalm. It's not saying be a good person, do good things, and only good things will happen to you. Did you notice that? Because the psalm talks about darkness that the light needs to overcome. The psalm talks about bad news. The psalm talks about adversaries. The very last verse is kind of depressing how it ends, right? People are angry at you and they're envious. And that's some of your reality is like by trying to please God, you end up making enemies. Friends, through the midst of all these challenges in life, how do we endure? How do we go on? This psalm says it's by trusting God. It's by knowing his character. It's by hoping in his promises. It's by believing the character of the good news, that he loves you, not because of your performance, but in spite of your performance. And this really gets the, to the key of the psalm that I want to end on this morning. This series that we do at Park every summer is called Christ in the Psalms. So it's not just, hey, let's talk about a psalm. It is, hey, let's ultimately talk about how this psalm points to or shows us our need for Christ. So can I show you that real quick in closing? If you're a Jew and you read this text, God says, do these things, be this kind of person, Trust in God, fear the Lord, all these things. And you would read that, and as a Jewish man or woman just reading that original text, you would say, my aspiration is to be this kind of person. I want to be a righteous person. I don't want to be an unrighteous person. But you would say, I fall short. I'm not always just in my dealings with other people. I'm not always generous. I withhold kindness sometimes. I withhold mercy sometimes. I refuse to forgive sometimes. But now looking back 2,000 years later, 
3,000 years after the text was written, we can celebrate as Christians the fact that one day a man walked this earth and he fulfilled every single line of this psalm. And something I did that encouraged my heart this week is literally walk through the psalm and instead of saying the righteous man, he, 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 I said Jesus this, Jesus feared the Lord. Jesus delighted in the commandments of his Father. Jesus is gracious and merciful and righteous. Jesus is generous on the one hand, and he does perfect justice on the other hand. Jesus is the righteous man par excellence that's depicted in this psalm. And friends, do you know where the one place in history where the grace, the mercy, and the righteousness simultaneously met and kissed is at the cross of Jesus Christ. When we sit there and we wrestle like, how, how, am, I, how am I merciful to my kids in this situation and simultaneously discipline them according to what they deserve? Ah, I don't know how to do that perfectly all the time. But in the cross of Jesus, righteousness is perfectly fulfilled because the standard was upheld. The soul that sins will die. There's a debt to be paid. And Jesus says, put that on me. I've lived a perfect life. I've held a level standard. Now put that on me and let me pay the penalty so that I can be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in me. So you get righteousness and grace and mercy at the same time. So friends, a Christian response to this psalm is just something simply like this. Lord, I want to live like the person you describe in this psalm. And let me appeal to some of you who have a more libertine mindset in closing. If you're like, man, I'm so thankful to go to a gospel-centered church because I'm just such a screw-up and, you know, I kind of laugh off my sin and don't take the Word of God seriously because He did it for me. Tim Keller says it so well and so often when he says the Christian life is not this legalistic, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But he says the right order is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted by the free grace and the mercy of God. Therefore, my heart is transformed by the Spirit of God, and I want to delight in His commandments. I want to be set free by His commandments. I want to be happy as a byproduct of faith in the one who ultimately delights my soul. Let's pray. Father, we just pause to maybe, first of all, just, just confess something, just repent of something. Maybe we knew, even in the first reading of this psalm, that we tend to be a more gracious, generous, empathetic, understanding person who ourselves is kind of rounding off those difficult parts of your commands that we don't like. Or maybe we are a person who sees everything in black and white and this is just, this is just what you got to do to be righteous. And we are not patient with people. We are not humble. We are not kind. We are not forgiving. Maybe, maybe you've raised an awareness, God, that we have gone through our everyday lives day after day and we don't fear you. Because we're doing things, we're saying things, we're thinking things that if, if Jesus of Nazareth were sitting there across the room, we would act differently. 
And Lord, we pray this not to put some kind of manipulative, legalistic burden on ourselves, but because we want to be free to just enjoy you and delight in you. So Lord, continue through the words of Psalm 112, continue to be transforming us into the kind of men and women and children that you want us to be. Thank you that where we have fallen woefully and inadequately short of what you require of this righteous person, that Jesus is our righteousness. And the way that this psalm can say two times that the, the righteousness of this person endures forever is because you yourself are our righteousness. And we have no hope other than you. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.